This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So it was with immense pleasure that I get to introduce uh, Dr. Ryan Rompersad this evening. Ryan is an assistant professor of psychiatry at UCSF. He completed his MD, PhD at Columbia University and his res- residency and fellowship training here at UCSF. And so as a practicing clinician researcher, uh, Ryan's work incorporates clinical studies, animal models, and laboratory-based investigations. So he's a, across the, the board, moves across scales to understand the microbiome and elucidate the mechanistic role of microbes in psychiatric disease. In an ongoing project, Dr. Rampersad is investigating one particular microbe, uh, one that's near and dear to my heart, lactobacillus, uh, a genera of microbes that are highly beneficial uh, predominantly in the human um, gut microbiome. And Ryan's determining its role in major depressive disorder. The study, which includes samples of the gut microbiota paired with blood samples in patients with major depressive disorder and healthy controls, is really truly unique amongst depressive disorder studies and has the potential to really inform novel therapeutic uh, and therapeutic targets uh, within the microbiome for the treatment of psychiatric disease. So Ryan's lecture tonight is titled Microbes and Mental Health, Mood Enhancing Effects of Gut Microbes. All yours, Ryan. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Sue, for that introduction. And so I am uh, really excited to talk to you all tonight about this new and emerging field. Um, and just want to highlight at the beginning that this is uh, in a really short period of time. We've actually learned so much about the gut microbiome, learned a little bit about the mechanisms that the gut microbiome, might, how it might contribute to psychiatric disease. I'll talk a little bit today about our own research, and we'll talk about where we're going and how we utilize the information to help treat mental health issues. And I'm really excited to go on this journey with you through the microbiome. And so just to start, I want to take a step back and talk about why we do the work that we do. Uh, America is currently in a significant mental health crisis. Um, about one in five Americans lives with a mental illness, and over 12 million individuals last year in the U.S. had serious thoughts of suicide. And when we look at this list of psychiatric illnesses, we see that major depressive uh, disorder, uh, anxiety disorders, and post-traumatic stress disorder top of the list. And these stress-related mental illnesses are of particular interest to us. And in particular, much of what I'll talk about today is related to depression. Um, However, some of what we'll talk about may also be related to other disorders. So mental health issues affect uh, individuals at multiple levels. Uh, In addition to causing significant stress for individuals um, at an individual level, uh, they also increase their risk for medical comorbidity increase the risk for substance use disorders. These diseases also affect families, local communities, and society at large. And for example, currently the leading cause of disability worldwide is actually depression. And this has significant societal costs in the form of lost productivity. And as we've lived through this COVID-19 pandemic, the mental health crisis has only become worse. And so currently our treatments, um, despite decades of research, have really sort of hinged on this idea of the monoamine hypothesis. And this has been the, the guiding point, guiding post for all of the development of uh, drugs that have been created. And this hypothesis suggests that depletion of serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine, these monoamines, underlies the de- development of psychiatric diseases. And selected serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, which you probably have heard of, Prozac, Zoloft, are the standard of care for many of these stress-related mental illnesses. Um, however, 
we know that they fail to fully reduce the burden of disease. Individual response rates range from 40 to 60% and um, with remission occurring only about 20 to 30 people. And so this poor response rate really highlights the need to identify new mechanisms by which the gut, by which uh, disease is developing, depression, anxiety, PTSD. And the gut microbiome may be one of these novel new targets. And so this work, given that this is a significant public health problem, this work is really critical and of great importance and is really important to me. And so no doubt in the top of the media, you already heard about the connection between the gut microbiome and the brain, maybe suggesting that the bacteria in, the, in your gut could explain your mood, maybe that they're linked to things like anxiety, uh, or maybe are intimately connected to physical health uh, and even mental health. And I think you've heard a lot about physical health and the gut microbiome throughout this entire series. And so the other possibility, given that we live in the Bay Area, is that maybe the microbiome is the key to happiness and you could potentially hack your, uh, <laughs> hack the microbiome for mood enhancing effects. And so tonight we'll talk about what we know and where and where do we go. Um, but before we get into the details, uh, what I want to sort of highlight uh, is to tell a story. And it's sort of a Stephen King-esque kind of story. And the picture above says a small rural town of Walkerton, Ontario, in Canada. And it name it isn't much to see, but there's actually an important player in the story that's featured in this picture. Um, and it's actually the water supply. So in May 2000, in what would be one of the deadliest outbreaks in Canada, the water supply actually became tainted with two bacteria, E. coli and Campylobacter. And this incident, beyond causing some acute gastroenteritis, would unfortunately have possible long-lasting consequences for the residents of the small town. And so two years after the outbreak, all the residents were invited to participate in a large study to assess the risk of long-term consequences of this exposure. And this was the Walkerton Health Study. And this real-world event in which a large number of people were affected by a particular exposure, this allowed researchers to look at the associations between this exposure. So in this case, having symptoms um, of acute gastroenteritis at the beginning of the uh, exposure uh, and several outcomes. And what they found was that uh, prior infection was associated with ongoing GI symptoms. So it's not fun, but totally makes sense. Uh, but interestingly, it was also associated with things like getting a new diagnosis of arthritis. And this is sort of peculiar. But what was even more interesting is what I point to here, which is that um, individuals who experienced symptoms of the GI infection, uh, of the infection when the water supply was tainted, actually were developing new psychiatric diagnosis two to four years after the exposure. And so this is a real world experiment. It doesn't necessarily tell us about causality, but we'll come back to this idea, so keep it in mind. But it does provide compelling evidence that a post-infectious uh, irritable bowel uh, you know, after this gastroenteritis was associated with the development of psychiatric symptoms in people who hadn't had a psychiatric diagnosis. These types of studies give us an indication about the connection between exposure and outcome. And I'll show tonight our knowledge of that, that connection between the gut microbiome and that mental health has really grown amazingly in a really short period of time. And so uh, just a few definitions. Um, I just want to remind us of what the gut microbiome is. And the gut microbiome is all of the organisms and their collective genes that are contained, with the, contained within the GI tract. Um, and I point out here that the number of microbial genes greatly outnumbers the number of human genes. 
And that really highlights um, just the number of functions and activities that this complex uh, community of organisms can carry out. Given this information, it's no surprise that we, can, we should think about the connection between the gut microbiome and the brain. Uh, so more than just sort of a, you know, an infectious disease where microbes are sort of annoyances that come in and cause all sorts of infections. In fact, uh, what we're beginning to see is that the complex ecosystem of organisms carries out important functions. Um, and these functions um, are critical to the normal uh, operations uh, within the host. Um, and so this includes functions like uh, maturation of the immune system, development, uh, protecting against the invasion of pathogens. Um, the gut microbiome plays lots of important roles in metabolism and detoxification of environmental toxins and other exposures. And this particular function, the ability, ability to transform substrates into bioactive metabolites, is of particular interest to us. And I'll tell you why it should be important to you too. Uh, and so then the last definition that we have is dysbiosis. And dysbiosis, so under healthy conditions, your gut contains a certain makeup of organisms. And um, these organisms normally carry out important functions that help you maintain homeostasis. They keep things status quo. Uh, but under conditions of disease, what you can see is that the microbiome can actually shift and change. And this results in a change in the members of the microbiome, that's who's there, but also can change the microbiome encoded function. So all of the things that the micro microbiome could possibly do or possibly make. And so it's no surprise that with uh, disease, if you see a shift in the microbiome, that there might be changes in the, the functions that are involved and that this change in function might be associated with the disease in some way. But the main question is how do activities and functions carried out by microbes in the gut contribute to changes in functioning of the brain and ultimately behaviors and psychiatric symptoms. And even though the gut is separated by great physical distance and several barriers, including the gut epithelium as well as the blood-brain barrier, we'll see and we'll learn that actually there is a connection and you can see that they are communicating with each other. And so this idea that the gut microbiome might be involved in mood and psychiatric disease really represents a real paradigm shift for the field of psychiatric research. Uh, biological psychiatry has long considered mental illness to exist firmly within the brain and anything below that just to be a manifestation of the illness from the brain. But exciting research in this field suggests that mental illness really isn't solely in the head, but it is also in the body. It is a both a mind and a body disease. And importantly, some of this may be contained within the gut. So I like to remind people that we've traced the call and it's coming from inside the gut. And so how do we understand the uh, amazing uh, conversation happening between gut and the brain? And I think Dr. Berendini, who presented previously, already, already introduced this idea of the gut-brain axis. And our task is to understand these microbial host conversations in the context of psychiatric illness, with the ultimate goal of developing novel therapies. When I think about this work, I often think about uh, three big questions. Um, and um, to help me kind of uh, understand what we're looking at and to understand what we might be questioning here. And so the three big questions, three big buckets that I'd like to think are, uh, one is who is speaking. And so this um, 
this involves kind of the types and kinds of organisms that are in the gut and how it might change with disease. And these types of studies provide us with evidence that there are differences. And from this work, we can infer how changes in the members of the community can contribute to disease. The second question that I often ask is, well, what are they saying? And I mentioned earlier, and you've heard from others, that the gut microbiome is metabolically active. It can produce a wide array of metabolites. And that these metabolites are really that sort of chemical language or vocabulary um, that are responsible for signaling and target cells and that these signals may contribute to disease. And the third question that I often ask is two parts, who's listening? And then how are they receiving these microbial communications? What are the routes and receptors and target cells that can respond to the signals? And so this will be kind of our guiding um, principles for the, the talk as we go through. These are sort of three big parts of the talk. And so first we'll talk about who's talking. And to do this, to answer this question, we can look at a number of human studies. And I'll just point out a couple here because uh, the field of microbiome and brain accessibility and psychiatric disease is still kind of new. And so there, are only, there aren't that many studies out there, but we need to get more going. And so this was a study that looked at people with generalized anxiety disorder compared to healthy controls. Uh, and what they found was that in the healthy controls, there were greater numbers and kinds of different bacteria in the healthy people, healthy stool, but not in those with generalized anxiety. And so there's, this is telling us that there is a difference uh, of reduction in number and kinds of organisms that are present. Um, and so in this graph, a lower number, as you would see with the generalized anxiety disorder, means that there are fewer, fewer different kinds of organisms within a sample. So telling us that something is different about generalized anxiety patients' gut microbiome compared to healthy control gut microbiome. And we can also ask about how distinct, different, distinct or different groups of samples are um, and how different they are from each other. And so this is known as beta diversity. You can see in the case of generalized anxiety disorder, the numbers and kinds of bacteria present in people with anxiety disorders shown in red those, those samples look more like each other and less like the gut microbiome of people with, uh, without an anxiety disorder. And so again, this is sort of information telling us, well, there's a difference. And people who have anxiety have microbiomes that look more similar to each other and very different than those who are healthy and don't have anxiety. We can also go a little deeper and ask about whether specific kinds of bacteria are different between people with anxiety compared to those with depression. And so this study found differences in a number of different organisms. Some organisms were increased, some others were decreased in anxiety. And so it's possible, right, to, that it's not just increases in certain bacteria, you know, pro-depressive, pro-anxiety bacteria that contribute to disease, but keep in mind that it also might be loss of sort of antidepressive or anti-anxiety microbes that might be contributing to disease. And I think it's an important point to remember as we walk through some of these studies, it could be an enrichment of something or a loss of something that can contribute to disease. I wanna point out another study that was about PTSD, a post-traumatic stress disorder. 
Um, and again, this is probably one of the only studies looking at PTSD in the gut microbiome. In this study, the authors used information about differences in the microbiome to determine if there were organisms that were particularly useful in identifying individuals with PTSD compared to healthy controls. And here they found that three groups of organisms, actinobacteria, Lentisferi and verrucomicrobia were reduced in PTSD, here in red, compared to healthy controls. And they go on to show that lower abundances of these organisms, so a lower number of these organisms present in the stool, is associated with greater severity of the PTSD. And what was great about this study was that they used people who were exposed to trauma but didn't develop PTSD. Um, and so this is exciting because it tells us that people with PTSD do have differences in their gut microbiome compared to those who are also exposed to traumatic stress, but don't develop TTFD. Now, as I already alluded to, it doesn't really tell us about causality, right? It doesn't tell us what caused things or what came first, but it does give us a sense of the organisms of interest. And we can kind of postulate something about these organisms that may be related to psychiatric disease. And these authors noted that it's really interesting that verrucomicrobia was reduced in PTSD. This verrucomicrobia, one of the species in that group, was known to have anti-inflammatory properties. And so maybe this was an important factor, an important property of the organism. So these kinds of studies are important first steps in trying to figure out how gut microbes contribute to psychiatric disease. And so now talking about depression, this is what we'll focus mostly on during the talk today. And this field, the majority of human studies have looked at the gut microbiome and depression, um, but there've only, there haven't been that many, just a handful of studies thus far. And we can expect more as time goes on. And here I just show one really representative study which demonstrated again that people with depression have a reduction in the numbers and kinds of bacteria that are present, which we refer to as richness and diversity. Um, and so depressed people just have a lower uh, richness and a lower diversity compared to healthy controls, very similar to the, the anxiety um, patients uh, in that st previous study. And similar to what you saw before, right, depressed microbiomes look more like each other and less like healthy microbiomes, again, suggesting that there is something different um, about these two uh, microbiomes between these two conditions. And similar to the anxiety study that you already saw, they went deeper and they asked, well, are there specific organisms that are importantly different? What they found was that Prevotella was reduced in depression. And this was kind of interesting because there had been some other studies, Parkinson's disease, that also had found similar reduction. And as I said already, these studies are informative, but they're snapshots, and snapshots in time. They kind of just give us a sense of what's there. But what was so groundbreaking about this particular study is what came next in their set of experiments. And so really interestingly, what they did was they took fecal samples from the human subjects and transferred these samples into mice. And so you can see they have these mice that they treated with antibiotics for several weeks to get rid of the gut microbiome. And then they put either a depressed stool or a healthy stool into the mice. And then they could do all sorts of uh, behavioral test to see if the mice developed depressive symptoms. And I'll give you the punchline now. They did, uh, the animals that were received the depressed stool actually developed depressive symptoms. And so we take a quick detour just to talk about how we assess depression in animals. And so 
I have three tests laid, uh, laid out here, and I'll briefly go through these. The sucrose preference tests, where mice are given water or a sugary sweet solution, which you can imagine is extremely rewarding and preferable to the mice. And so normally they have a preference for sucrose. However, when mice are experiencing a depressive-like illness, which kind of resembles the reduced interest in pleasurable things that comes along with depression, they have less preference for the, the sugar water. And so we can measure the amount of times they go for that sugar solution. The second test is the elevated plus maze. And so the elevated plus maze has two open arms and two enclosed arms. And when feeling depressed, people are less likely to seek out novel situations. And so in this paradigm, normally mice spend some amount of time in the closed arm and some amount of time exploring the open arms, which are just sort of open to the world. However, when mice are having depressive-like symptoms, or anxiety-like symptoms, the animals spend less time in those open areas spend more time in the closed portion of the elevated maze. And then the third test is called the open field test, where animals are able to sort of explore their cage. And normally animals spend some amount of time on the outer edge, which feels a bit safer to them. And then they spend some time in the center, which is a bit, feels a little bit less safe. When animals are experiencing depression and anxiety-like symptoms, they spend less time in the center and more time in the periphery at the outer edge. So keep these in mind because these tests will continue to come back. And so in the study, as I mentioned, what they did was they gave uh, the mice either a depressed stool from depressed patients or stool from healthy controls. And what they found was that mice that received the depressed stool had lower preference for sucrose, so mimicking depressive-like behaviors. They spent less time in the open arms of the elevated plus maze, and they spent less time in the center of the cage, indicating that they had developed some depressive-like symptoms. What was interesting was that it wasn't due just to the transfer of the organisms, because the controls looked just fine. They looked normal. Um, and so this was a really exciting experiment because it really finally was able to sort of demonstrate causality. It showed that the depressed stool contained some unique factors, some microbes or group microbes or particular community that was responsible for inducing depressive-like symptoms in the animal. And it was not present in the control stool. So we come back to our model again. And so what I've shown you so far is that there are a handful of studies in psychiatric disease, um, and in particular depression, which have addressed the question of who is speaking. Uh, but now we turn to the question of the routes of communication. And you've kind of heard a little bit about this from other talks in the series, uh, but we want to talk a little bit about how gut-brain signaling communication might occur in the context of psychiatric disease. And so first we talk about vagal nerve signaling. And so in thinking about the routes of communication, um, the vagus nerve is the temporal nerve, and it's a long nerve that extends directly from the brain and into the abdomen. And the nerve contains afferent nerves, so it's nerve sending signals to the brain, and efferent nerves, nerve sending signals from the brain to the GI tract. And so it's this kind of bi-directional route communication. Um, and one of the first observations that suggested it may play a role uh, in mood came from observing patients who experienced partial gastrectomy or removal of the stomach to treat peptic ulcers. And so this resulted in a lack of signaling via the vagus nerve below the stomach because they snipped the nerve. And so what they found was that those patients who had had this partial gastrectomy actually developed, uh, had an increased risk for incidents of mental illness, mostly depression, 
And this is interesting because it suggests that signals are received via the vagal nerve were important for preventing mood symptoms. And when the signal was gone, some people experienced the development of psychiatric symptoms. And this is really interesting because vagal nerve stimulation has actually emerged as an approved method to treat patients with refractory depression, and that's depression that doesn't respond to medication. So this is really exciting. Uh, but the question remains, you know, what are those signals that are coming from the gut that normally stimulate this nerve in healthy people? And what are, the, what are the signals that are lost in depression? And how does stimulation improve mood symptoms? So I kind of bring us to this um, model where we have bugs of the, gut microbe, of the gut microbiome producing some signals that can activate the vagus nerve and send signals up to the brain. And under conditions of stress or depression, this might change. And either we get aberrant signals, so different kinds of signals, or we get a loss of the previous signal that was keeping symptoms from manifesting and depressive behavior from developing. And so I show here a really uh, great, exciting piece of work from um, an amazing group um, who really wanted to ask, how important is the vagal nerve? And so what they did was they wanted to alter the gut microbiome in some way by giving mice a lactobacillus species. So they took a mouth and fed it the lactobacillus, and then they looked at the behavior. And so what you can see in black here are animals that received just the broth that the bugs were grown in, but no bugs, versus animals that were given this lactobacillus species. And what they found was that, and EPM is the elevated plethmates, what they found was that those mice that received this lactobacillus actually spent more time in the open arms. So they kind of looked like they had less anxiety and less depression, which is pretty interesting. Um, and then here we have a different test, which is the fourth swim test. And um, again, when you gave the animals lactobacillus, what ended up happening is that they uh, didn't swim so much. They kind of gave up early when, you, when they were put in the water. And so they kind of just float around. And so what you can see is that here, uh, when you got lactobacillus, you spent less time floating and more time actually uh, exerting yourself to swimming, which was indicative of less anxiety behavior. Right? If you were feeling anxiety, anxious or depressed, you might give up a little bit earlier. And so you spend more time mobile. And this is really interesting. And so the, the next question they wanted to ask was, well, there are signals coming from the gut microbiome, but can it alter the expression of receptors in the brain? And studies have shown that the expression of GABA receptors, a particular neurotransmitter in the brain, might be important for depression. And what they demonstrated here, again, was that compared to mice that didn't get the lactobacillus, there was a change in the receptor of the, the expression of the GABA receptors, a reduction in the amygdala and an increase in the hippocampus. Um, and exactly how that's linked to uh, depression um, is still sort of being understood, but it really kind of demonstrates that something that happens in the, in the gut actually could alter the expression of a receptor in the brain. And so that's pretty remarkable that something could be happening so distant um, over a great amount of space. And so they wanted to ask, and so we can think, they wanted to ask a little bit more about like the mechanism. And they thought, well, the vagus nerve runs directly from the brain all the way into the gut. That might be a, an interesting target. And so what happened if we cut the vagus nerve under normal conditions, these lactobacillus produce lots of great molecules unknown that signal via the vagus nerve that have some sort of anxiolytic or antidepressive effect. So what happens if you have a lactobacillus, but you cut 
the route of signaling. And so they did just that. So what you see on the left-hand part, again, is the open field test that we talked about before. And so when you gave the mice the lactobacillus, they spent more time in the center, so less anxious. But if you did the same experiment, but you, you did it in mice that had their vagus nerve snipped, you actually lost the effect. So here is animals who are receiving the lactobacillus, but they've had their vagus nerve cut. And so you can see that they don't spend any more time in the center of the maze, suggesting that the beneficial effects of the lactobacillus were due to signaling via the vagus nerve. And then they went on to show that you could actually change the ability to alter expression of receptors in the brain, right? So we had seen previously that if you gave a lactobacillus, you could change the expression of GABA receptors in the amygdala and the hippocampus. But in this case, if you gave a lactobacillus, there was no change if you cut the vagus nerve. So if we go back to this, we can sort of say, well, this is really interesting. What happens if you cut the vagus nerve? Well, there's no effect. The signals may still be produced, but they don't get to the brain. They don't change the expression of GABA receptors, and they don't change the behavior. This is a really exciting experiment because it really points to an interesting connection between the gut and the brain. Uh, but I think there are still lots of uh, questions to ask. So, you know, are, is it all lactobacillus species that can do this? Uh, what are the bacterial signals that are responsible for this effect? What are the receptors in the nerves that respond to those signals? And uh, what other changes occur in the brain that might be related to lactobacilli? And so this is really cool. And so we can kind of add it to our model as we go along. We'll keep adding to this model as we discuss. And so another possible route, as you really already probably heard about, especially from, I think, Dr. Baron Zini, is uh, the route of neuroimmune signaling. So that is how microbes might communicate with the brain by changing or modulating the immune system. And so under normal conditions, the gut barrier is really tight. It has these tight junctional proteins that kind of keep everything together. Um, and under conditions of stress or depression, this barrier, these proteins might become uh, broken down or get into the bloodstream. And then you get the passage of things that might go into the bloodstream that shouldn't be there. And this is sort of referred to as leaky gut. Um, and what ends up happening is that these uh, molecules can get into the bloodstream and then cause activation of the immune system. And this was interesting because depression has long been associated with increased inflammation, uh, increased pro-inflammatory cytokines. And it was one idea is that maybe it's signals from the gut microbiome that are getting in that should be that shouldn't be there. So we have a little bit of evidence for this. This was a study that first looked at uh, people with depression and anxiety, and they looked at the gut microbiome and they saw again that there were significant differences. Depression and anxiety had some bacteria that were enriched, and then people were, which were healthy and didn't have depression and anxiety had different kinds of bacteria. And so there was a difference in the community structure. Uh, but what was interesting was that then they then looked at the blood to find evidence that things that were in the gut were getting into the blood that shouldn't be there. And so the first thing that they looked at was LPS. This is a component of the bacterial cell wall. So normally it shouldn't really be kind of circulating in the blood. But what they found was that people with depression and anxiety had greater levels of LPS compared to their healthy counterparts. They also looked at two proteins called zonulin and fatty acid binding protein too. And these proteins are normally involved in 
maintaining that tight barrier of the gut epithelium. And so what ended up happening was that they showed that in depressed people or people with anxiety, you have increased product, increased amount of zonulin and fatty acid binding protein in the bloodstream, indicating that the gut epithelial barrier was broken down. Um, those things not, should not normally be there. And so again, come back to the model. And so under normal conditions, everything is is great and things are kept out of the bloodstream. All of these bacteria are kind of where they should be in the lumen of the gut. But under conditions of stress or depression, air becomes impaired in some way and molecules and bacteria spill out. And things like LPS, uh, endotoxin, um, and other microbes can sort of get out. And then they can interact with um, receptors on immune cells and result in the production of cytokines. And as we said, depression has long been associated with lots of pro-inflammatory cytokines. Um, and these cytokines might be able to signal to the brain that might induce then inflammation in the brain, which might have a role in psychiatric diseases. And so now we can sort of um, uh, add that, which is cytokine production to our model. But the gut microbiome can also possibly um, alter the composition and function of immune cells. And this hasn't been extensively studied, um, but it's a, uh, in depression, but it's a significant aspect of our current study. We know that microbes can change the activity and function and, and composition of immune cells. And we're really interested in looking at whether or not monocytes, these patrolling cells in the, in the blood, are affected by gut microbes in depression in some way that make them better able to enter the brain. And I think you've already heard too about T cells, that T cells can become all different kinds and types. Some are pro-inflammatory, some are anti-inflammatory. And we're really interested in looking at whether or not in depression, the microbes that are present can shift uh, T cells towards a pro-inflammatory and away from an anti-inflammatory kind of state. And so there's lots of evidence in other diseases, but this idea of, of regulating the immune system is really just beginning. And it's something we're hoping to really accomplish with our study. And so again, I come back to outstanding questions. So, um, and I think this is a common theme is what are those signals that alter cytokine production and immune function and composition? And what cell types are the most important for depressive symptoms? And these are questions that we really hope to answer in our, in our studies. So we've talked a lot about stress and stress-related diseases. And so another mechanism of communication, another way that the gut microbes might be contributing to psychiatric disease and brain, altered brain function and behavior is to alter the stress response or regulate the stress response. And so I just want to point this out, right? So the stress response is a sort of coordinated system where the brain receives stress signals and produces things like ACTH. ACTH can then go to the adrenal glands and produce adrenaline and cortisol, and cortisol and alterations in cortisol have really been associated with depression for quite some time. And cortisol and adrenaline cause all kinds of physiological responses associated with being stressed out, like high blood pressure, increased heart rate. And in response to stress, behavior can either be fight, flight, or freeze. And uh, once to keep that in mind as we talk through some of the next experiments that kind of demonstrated that the gut microbiome could really regulate the stress response. So in a really, really exciting set of uh, experiments, these researchers asked, could you knock out the gut microbiome of mice using antibiotics and then expose them to a stressor? 
And in this case, the stressor was essentially a uh, mouse first date where they exposed the antibiotic-treated mice to another mouse and had them interact. And if anybody has ever been on a first date, you know that that can be kind of stressful. And then they thought, well, we could look at the behavior of the mouse and aspects of the stress response to see if there were differences between mice that had a gut microbiome and mice that didn't have a gut microbiome. Not surprisingly, when they looked at the mice, they found that animals treated with the antibiotics had significant impairment in their social activity, right? How many times they interacted with the paired mouse uh, compared to those that were untreated. And in this case, VEH just means untreated. They weren't treated with antibiotics, so they have their gut microbiome. And so this is really interesting because it suggested that if you knocked out the gut microbiome, uh, you lost some, some behavioral response. People, the animals became less inclined to interact in a stressful situation. So this was interesting. And so then they wanted to ask, well, I wonder if there are changes associated with regions of the brain that are normally implicated in the stress response. And so to do that, they were able to look at the activity of the brain. And so they looked at the hypothalamus, and they looked at the hippocampus, two regions that are normally associated with depression and, uh, and where activation is associated with depression. And what they found was that if you knocked out the gut microbiome, so here are the antibiotic-treated mice, you actually had greater activation of the hypothalamus. And if you remember back, I said the hypothalamus is responsible for the kicking off that stress cascade, producing ACTH, compared to the untreated animals. And the same was true for the hippocampus. There was more activity in those who had the gut microbiome knocked out compared to those who had their gut microbiome intact. And so this suggests that something in the gut microbiome was actually responsible for preventing activation of these particular regions of the brain. This, is, this seems somewhat peculiar. But it makes sense if we recall that the gut microbiome is really important in homeostasis. Homeostasis keeps everything going and functional. And so what they've shown was that there was a change in behavior if you knocked out the gut microbiome. There was an overactivation of these regions of the brain that are normally responsible or involved in stress responses. And then they looked in the blood and looked at cortisol, or in this case, corticosterone, which is the the homolog of cortisol in the mouse. And again, what they found was that mice that were treated with the antibiotics that had their gut microbiome knocked out had a greater amount of cortisol circulating in their blood compared to those who had their microbiome intact in response to the stressful mouse first state that they experienced. And so it's interesting. Microbes don't just do things that contribute to stress responses. But these microbes were actually preventing the mouse from experiencing excessive stress. In effect, the microbiome was serving as the resilience factor. And so you can imagine under depressive conditions, uh, in a person, normal situations might actually induce a strong stress response, uh, especially if their gut microbiome is altered in some way. And so in order to identify those organisms, because the next lot of the question is, well, I wonder who in the gut microbiome is responsible for this. And so in order to do that, they compared uh, mice treated with uh, a specific combination of antibiotics versus, and then they dropped one out. And N here refers to neomycin. And what they found was that 
if you treated the mice with neomycin and exposed them to the stressor, they had low social activity. So kind of mimicking anxiety-like situation. But if you dropped out the neomycin and you prevented the loss of a bug that maybe had been knocked out because of the neomycin, you actually saw that the social activity was higher. It almost looked like normal. And so again, uh, this demonstrated uh, that when present, um, the neomycin uh, knocked out a particular organism that was responsible for preventing excessive activation of the stress response. And so then when they compared the two conditions, they found that there was a specific kind of bacteria, this enterococcaceae, um, that was sensitive to neomycin. So when you didn't add neomycin, maintain social activity, there was this, they were kind of hanging out and doing their thing with the mice. Um, and so then they wanted to see, well, what happens if we give that back? So if we knocked it out with the antibiotic cocktail, but then we give just that one organism back, is that enough to save the animals and prevent them from having excessive stress responses? And so they did that experiment. And so you can see time plate one, is the mice that were treated where, where they were treated with neomycin and their enterococcus was knocked out. And so they have some amount of, you know, some decrement, uh, deficit in social activity. But then when they took the same mice and they gave them the enterococcus back and they put them in that stressful experience, what they found was that the social activity actually increased for all of the organisms, uh, for all of the animals. And that's really interesting, right? Because it suggests that yeah, this one organism was actually responsible for presenting excessive activation of the stress response. And so if we go kind of bring it into the model, what we can see is that under normal conditions, these enterococcus are kind of present in the gut microbiome. They produce some signal. We don't yet know what exactly those are. We have some ideas. Um, and then these can maybe go into the brain, inhibit activation of brain regions that are involved in the stress response, and ultimately inhibit the release of cortisol in response to stress in response to stress. And under conditions of, say, antibiotics or disease like depression, um, we may get a depletion of enterococcus, maybe a reduction in these unknown signal, which then results in increased activation of the stress response after experiencing a stressor, and then increased release of cortisol in response to stress. And this excessive cortisol response is really important. It has a function in potentially contributing to psychiatric disease, but also has implications for people's physical health um, as it may be related to the development of, of a wide range of uh, other diseases like hypertension and diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And so again, I bring us back though, we still have a couple of questions, which is what are the things responsible for contributing to stress resilience? And what other kinds of organisms uh, might be resilience promoting organisms? And so we kind of toss this into our model now that bugs may be able to be a stress resilience factor to prevent excessive stress responses. And so lastly, um, in terms of thinking about uh, routes of communication, um, in the context of depression, the ability of cells in the hippocampus, a particular region of the brain to proliferate and divide has been associated are linked to depression. Um, so depression may be related to reduced ability of neurons in the hippocampus to proliferate. And so naturally we wanted to ask people, uh, researchers wanted to ask whether or not gut microbes could 
affect this process of neurogenesis in the hippocampus? And in order to answer this question, they used another stress-based model of disease of using mice. And so again, they have mice that they didn't treat at all. They just sort of let them hang out. And then they had mice that were exposed to this chronic stress. Um, what they found, um, again, we come back to the forced swim test and to remember time, greater time immobile means more anxiety, more depression. Um, and so what they found was that mice that were just sort of allowed to hang out in their cages without any issue had, you know, some amount of time immobile, but they tend to swim and, and kind of really try during the trial. But if you expose the mice to unpredictable chronic mild stress and sort of mimic depression, what you ended up getting was mice that spent more time immobile. They didn't, they spent more time floating and less time swimming, indicating some depressive symptoms. And I think you already saw already that one of the things that we like to do is to do these uh, transfer experiments, because then we can see whether or not it's the microbiome that's contributing. And so they did just that. And so what they did was they took mice and they either got the control, not stressed out mice stool, or they got the chronic, the UCMS stressed mice stool. And so what they found is that if mice that received the stool from animals that were not stressed basically looked the same as the, the, for the donor mice. And then when you gave the mice uh, the stool from the stressed mouse, right, you transferred that stool into them, they actually, again, recapitulated what we saw for the original mouse, right? Suggesting that there was something in the gut microbiome that was responsible for inducing depressive behaviors in the mice. Something about that microbiome was changed or different and was enough to result in a behavioral deficit. And so then they wanted to look at neurogenesis. And so what they could do is look at these, these two animals, right? Those that received the not stressed, the not stressed stool, and those receiving the stressed stool. And then they could look at the proliferation of the cells using a dye. And so what you can see here is that red. More red just means more proliferated cells. And what they found is that animals that received the not stressed gut microbiome had lots of red. There were lots of proliferating cells in the hippocampus. But if you received the stressed microbiome uh, from the stressed animals, uh, you could see that there was a significant reduction in uh, the uh, proliferation of the hippocampal neurons. Now, how exactly this is related to depression is we're still kind of understanding, but there's a, a long history of seeing reduced neurogenesis associated with depression. And this sort of suggests that something in the microbiome is responsible. And so they took this one step further and wanted to um, ask about who in the gut microbiome was important. And what they ended up finding, and I don't show it here, but what they found was that a lactobacillus species uh, one of these beneficial organisms was actually significantly reduced in the stressed mice compared to the not stressed mice. And so what they did was they did the exact same experiment we just talked about. They took mice that didn't have a gut microbiome and they put either the not stressed microbes microbiome in, they put the stressed microbiome in, but because the lactobacillus were missing from the stressed mice, they said, well, what if we give them the stressed stool but we also give back the lactobacillus. And so <clears throat> what you can see here is not stressed. They spend more time swimming and less time floating, indicating less anxiety and depressive behavior. If you give the stressed stool, they spend more time immobile, 
more time floating, it's more anxious. But if you gave them back the lactobacillus, you actually made them look more like the nostrif animal. And so this demonstrated that the lactobacillus were actually really important for this response in these animals. And so I think you're starting to maybe get the idea that lactobacillus are kind of amazing, because uh, I feel that way. And so we can add this to this sort of model. So under normal conditions, lactobacilli might be producing some kind of signals that can stimulate hippocampal neurogenesis. And under conditions of stress or depression, there might be a reduction in these gut microbes, these lactobacilli, and a reduction in these signals and decreased hippocampal neurogenesis that then contributes to psychiatric disease. So this is exciting, right? Because this is an amazing model. Um, but again, still some questions to ask. Are there other kinds of bacteria that modulate neurogenesis? Are there uh, organisms that specifically antagonize neurogenesis, so prevent hippocampal neurogenesis? And then what are the bacteria signals produced by lactobacilli that are responsible for uh, modulating this neurogenesis process? And so again, this is getting ever increasingly complex, but we can add this to the model as well. So this is really exciting. So we've got lots of different ways that the gut can communicate with the brain. And so if we return and take stock of what we discussed so far, I've shown you who's speaking. We know that in psychiatric disease, in a particular depression, there's a change in the gut microbiome composition. This is likely associated with changes in the activities and functions encoded by the gut microbiome. Um, we also highlight some of the targets of these microbial signals, so neurons in particular regions of the brain, maybe immune cells, both in the peripheral, in the periphery as well as in the brain, um, uh, brain regions involved in stress response, and then vagal nerve signaling. And we've discussed uh, a little bit about how they might receive some of these signals. But we haven't talked yet about what they're saying. I think this is the most exciting piece. And so the gut microbiome is metabolically active. Um, and so encoded in the genes are, of the bacteria are instructions to make all sorts of things. And I'll just briefly describe some of the more interesting molecules. And so how do we figure out or think about chemical signals? Well, we can do shotgun metagenomics where we sort of take stock of all the genes and categorize them and ask what kinds of functions the bacterial community could carry out. We can do metabolomics on the stool where we look at the metabolites that are actually produced by the bacteria. And then interestingly, we can also look at the blood metabolites to find microbial specific signatures of disease. So microbial metabolites that may be involved in psychiatric disease that get into the bloodstream and then maybe ascend to the brain and then hit, hit their target there to contribute to disease. And so what I want to show here is that in one of the largest studies of depression so far, so uh, hundreds of people, this group looked at the genes um, of a large number of different kinds of organisms. And what they found was that the machinery could produce different neuroactive metabolites. You can see dopamine synthesis here. There's um, serotonin synthesis, GABA synthesis, all of these uh, neuroactive metabolites. Um, what we found is that some, the ability to produce some metabolites is actually not that common in certain organisms. And then the ability to produce others are actually more common. So the rare ones here are such as rare GBMs and then down here ubiquitous GBMs. And the main point here is just that there's a difference in terms of who can produce what. And I think that this is important because it highlights that shifts and changes in the microbiome do have implications for the types and kinds of molecules 
that a gut microbiome could produce. And so under conditions of depression, maybe you have a shift in the ability to produce dopamine or the ability to produce serotonin, and that might have some effect on psychiatric disease. And we're still trying to elucidate some of that. But in this paper, what was really exciting was that they found that the ability of microbes to synthesize the dopamine metabolite, DOPAC, was actually associated with better quality of life. So these are all mental health scores on a big survey questionnaire where they ask people about how they're feeling and uh, do they feel emotionally well? And how's their social functioning? And you can see just by indicated by blue color that greater ability to produce this metabolite was associated with better scores on these uh, surveys. And so we're still trying to figure out exactly what that means and how that's connected to psychiatric depression, but it's a really, really exciting target for us to then start to understand, well, what is DOPAC and what does it do and how does it relate to improvements in symptoms? Um, the other big thing maybe you've probably heard about is short-chain fatty acids. So what I show here um, is another animal study, although there are a couple of human studies that have demonstrated that you know, in mice that are depressed, so those that were exposed to this kind of chronic stress, have a reduction in a number of uh, short-chain fatty acids, acetic acid, propionic acid, pentanoic acid. Um, and so this is really interesting because um, lots of people have been talking about short-chain fatty acids, and we're still trying to understand exactly what's going on. But we know that short-chain fatty acids are made from fiber that comes in from our diet. They may interact with receptors that are on the gut epithelium, but they may also affect immune function. And because they, because of how, what, how they're made and what they are, they actually can go directly into the brain. And short-chain fatty acids have been shown to maybe uh, play a role in neurogenesis. They may have some effect on cognitive development and improving memory. They may alter inflammation in the brain by regulating the activities of things like microglia and astrocytes. The last thing that I want to talk about is uh, tryptophan, so proteolytic fermentation products. So these are a whole category of metabolites that are produced from the breakdown or modulation or metabolism of protein and amino acids. Um, and in our own work, this is what we're really particularly interested in looking at, um, the ability to transform all kinds of amino acids into bioactive molecules. And what this uh, study found was that in depressed people, uh, there's they contained greater amounts of chimerinized tryptophan metabolites, indicating that something about depression is associated with a greater change and transformation of tryptophan into other metabolites. And because they did this experiment where they transferred the stool into mice, they then demonstrated that the same effect was able to be repeated in the mice that got the gut microbiome, suggesting that there was something about that gut community that was responsible or contributing to the increased metabolism of tryptophan and the increased production of this chimerinine metabolite. Um, and it's really interesting because tryptophan can be produced or changed or metabolized into a variety of different things. And this is a really big part of our study. We're really interested in all the ways that gut microbes can make different kinds of tryptophan metabolites how they may change the activity of neurons, microglia, and astrocytes, um, these, these cells in the brain, to contribute to psychiatric disease. And so we come back to the model, and now we can sort of fill in. These are the signals, right? These are the things that are contributing to uh, disease in some way. And so I want to just detour very quickly and just talk about brain structure function. So we've talked a lot about 
um, individual cells. But when we think about behavior, we think about coordinated activity of different brain regions and lots of cells and circuits working together. And so we kind of want to be able to integrate brain imaging with gut microbiome analysis. And this is pretty new. Um, and there's not so much out in the literature, but we're, this is something that we're planning to do in our own study. And so this was a study that was published that found that certain bacteria were associated with the volume of particular brain regions, in particular, again, the hippocampus and the amygdala, because these are really important for the pathophysiology of depression. Um, and again, this doesn't tell us exactly what they're doing, but it gives us lots of targets, lots of interesting organisms that we might be able to study in depth. And so this other, just thinking about this idea of connectedness and circuit level function, this was a study that found that the ability, the abundance of an organism in the stool that actually produces GABA, a big neurotransmitter, um, was associated with reduced connectivity um, in this region of the brain called the DLPFC, the dorsolateral cortex. And this has been shown to be uh, previously hypoactive in depression. And so it kind of suggested that there was this connection, more GABA-producing organisms, um, less connectivity, less activity in this region of the brain. And we don't yet totally know exactly what that means, but I think it's really exciting to be able to combine information about gut microbes with information about activity in the brain in real time. And so we have this complicated model and we're just sort of beginning to kind of to dissect apart and understand what's going on. Um, but I want to take a little detour and talk about the treatment, right? Because we all want to know, well, how can we use this information to create new and novel tools? And I always say that, you know, what, what was old becomes new again. So the possibility of microbial-based therapeutic for psychiatric illness was written about you know, over a hundred years ago and suggested that it could, you know, this paper suggested that lactic acid bacteria or lactobacilli uh, could inhibit putrefactive processes and suggested that it was due to its ability to produce lactic acid. And while this may be partially true, we're actually beginning to understand the great number of mechanisms that lactobacilli might be employing to have their health promoting benefits. And so we can envision a situation one day where maybe we have a live microbial therapeutic that could be added to current treatments or in place of to help treat psychiatric illness. And there's a little bit of studies now kind of coming out demonstrating that if you gave people a lactobacillus and a bifidobacterium, another probiotic species, this combination for eight weeks in a group of depressed people, that you could reduce their depressive symptoms over the course of eight weeks. And these are just ways that we assess the severity of depression. And so after eight weeks, people had significant improvements in their uh, depression severity scores. And so that's really exciting because it tells us that there's a possibility, uh, but we still have some questions. So are all lactobacillus and bifidobacterium containing probiotics effective? How do they exert their mood enhancing effects? What are the genes in the bacteria that are responsible? And this is a really important question for our work. And are there organisms that could be beneficial for the treatment of stress-related psychiatric illness? And so in our own study right now, what we are doing is actually growing lactobacillus species directly out of the school, studying them in the lab. What we're hoping to do is knock out in different genes from these bacteria and identify mutant, gene, uh, mutant organisms that have a gene knockout that don't have the same health-promoting benefit. And this is a big part of what we're doing, because again, 
As I mentioned, we really love Black Widows, so I, I think they're just absolutely amazing. And so where else do we go from here? Um, well, one detour, I want to talk a little bit about sort of personalized medicine and depression. So depression is not just one single thing, it's actually many things. And so for a long time, we've thought about depressive subtypes. And initially, what we used was clinical symptoms to identify subtypes, maybe an anxious subtype, an atypical subtype, a melancholic subtype. But what you can see is that a number of people don't have any subtypes. And unfortunately, this kind of uh, grouping system hasn't necessarily led to a more effective treatment, right? We had the hope was that we could tailor treatments to the particular subtype. But what we're hoping to do in our study is maybe we could identify biological subtypes based on their gut microbiomes. And so maybe you have a lactobacillus depleted depression that we should treat in a particular way. Maybe you have a short chain fatty acid depleted um, depression, we should treat that in a particular way. And this is something that we're really, really excited and looking forward to um, kind of exploring in our own work. And so I just want to sort of kind of round things out by just saying that I think moving forward, what is important is that we start to do this sort of integrated analysis of the gut microbiome. I've shown you human studies, I've shown you studies about the immune system, about animals, about brain imaging. But if we can put all of these things together, the power is so great to be able to understand how microbes affect uh, symptoms, how they affect the metabolites that are circulating in the blood, how they affect the immune system, how they affect the activity of the brain in real time. And so we can integrate all of that information to identify important microbes and microbial products. We can potentially grow those organisms out of the, out of the stool and study them individually. We could screen them for potential health promoting benefits. Uh, we can use those animal models that you've seen throughout the talk to validate our, our results to sort of say, well, if we have a depressed animal, could we give it this thing that we think has a, a potential benefit with the ultimate goal of being able to develop novel live microbial therapeutics and to, to more rationally select the kinds and types of bacteria that we use to treat the particular problems that people are experiencing. And so really this is, you know, integration of lots of different modalities and lots of expertise uh, from different people and different groups, right? We want to have this sort of team science approach so that we can really dig deep into this question. And so just to kind of summarize it all together, demonstrated psychiatric disease is associated with shifts in the composition and function of the gut microbiome. We talked about several routes, but it's by no means exhaustive uh, list. We talked about vagal nerve signaling. We talked about the immune system. We talked about the possibility of it regulating stress response and the possibility of modulating genesis. And the other big point that I want to point out is that microbial metabolites are the chemical language that mediate gut microbiota brain communication. And if we can understand and decode that kind of chemical vocabulary, we could potentially leverage that for therapeutic effect. And so moving forward, more studies with larger samples are required if we're trying to do this. Detailed and careful phenotyping of depression um, in order to understand how gut microbiome affects depressive symptoms and the, the presentation of depressive symptoms will be important. Cross-disciplinary studies. We have to combine expertise in microbiome analysis, bacterial genetics, animal models, brain imaging, and while I did put up lots of questions, because there are always questions to ask, 
I do want to point out that in a really short period of time, we've learned a huge amount about gut-brain access communication. And as more people start to study this, and as our technology grows and becomes more accessible, the trajectory is really just astronomical. And then last point is just to say that live microbial therapeutics as a treatment are a real possibility. And work being done now will allow us to find novel therapies, but also tailor therapies to individual problems. And so with that, um, I just want to thank everybody for listening and your attention. You know, I thank you all for the opportunity to come and talk about this work. Um, I want to acknowledge the members of my lab and mentors, Owen Wolkwitz, Cynthia Mellon, Victor Ruth, and Dr. Lynch, uh, as well as other members of the lab, um, Department of Psychiatry, uh, my home, and also all of the funding that has allowed us to do this uh, work and carry this out. And our study is currently uh, starting up again uh, very, very soon. And so come visit us at candy.ucsf.edu. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you so much, Ryan. That was really wonderful. Really great. And we've got lots of questions in the Q&A, so maybe we'll jump in. Um, the first one, you touched on this a little bit towards the end of the talk, but a, a question about what kind of food should we eat to get a good microbiome for fighting depression? <laughs> so I knew it was coming up because I, I, it's always right. Because the question is like, what can you, what can I do today? What can I do right now? And I, I would say that there are some general guiding principles. And before I talk about that, I guess maybe what I want to say is that we still have a lot to learn about like what is healthy and what is not healthy and how we specifically modulate certain kinds of bacteria. And just a plug, we're gonna be looking at diet in our current study. And so we're gonna ask these questions. Um, but I think, you know, guiding principles, right? Lots of leafy greens, fermented foods are not bad. Cheese doesn't hurt anybody. Um, <laughs> so lots of things that um, maybe have already probiotic species. Now, the question is, you know, we can't say that it's absolutely going to graft or it's going to be beneficial, but they're not bad and they all have health promoting effects. And I, um, you know, there are some epidemiological studies kind of similar to what I pointed out at the very, very beginning that say that maybe fermented foods reduce, say, social anxiety in young adults. But we still have to do more to understand what the mechanism is. So I'd say, you know, fermented dairy products, not a bad idea. Okay, great. And kind of a follow-up to this, I, I, I love this question, a special truth question for the last session from Norman. Do any of you researchers and professors eat any special foods, for example, fermented foods, or take any type of supplements to enhance your microbiome? <laughs> um, <all> right. <laughs> <laughs> wow, we're, just, we're laying all the cards on the table today. Uh, so, <laughs> so I would say I am a, I'm a big fan of cheese, and I, I haven't I haven't tested myself pre and post the big bolus of cheese, but I, I definitely feel better after eating cheese. So that's my, that's my personal uh, go-to probiotic meal of choice. But I think um, lots more work to do to kind of understand what could you put in your body right now um, that would help build up something beneficial. Yeah. And I think it's also important to think about the interaction. It's not just the diet comes in and has a given um, you know, metabolic activity that is profoundly related to the types of microbes and their activities that are in each individual and their microbiome is unique to them. So right. you know that there's some studies really trying to work out kind of input diet, microbiome, um, genetic 
capacity and capacity to transform those foods into bioactive molecules. So it's very much an interaction between the input diet and the, and the gut microbiome. So it's not a one will fit all, uh, but rather kind of an interaction that many of us in the field are are trying to disentangle to understand kind of the the biological truths between specific input dietary um, dietary inputs and specific microbial activities that predictably pr- produce these bioactive molecules that right. provide benefit to the host. So it's not an easy answer to, <laughs> not an easy question to answer. Yeah. <laughs> a question asking where, where can we get lactobacillus to uh, kind of add to our microbiome to fight depression? There's a somewhat similar answer to that as well, but <laughs> before you can source them, maybe you can address that as well. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure that people have walked to the grocery store and, and seen probiotics kind of on the shelf. And, and what I would say is that there are lactobacillus in there, but not FDA regulated. We don't totally know exactly what's in there. And so you know, it's sort of buyer beware, use at your own risk, right? Um, as to whether or not they have a beneficial effect. And so um, I think I maybe alluded to this, but I think there's still more work to be done to identify like what are the important strains. And I think maybe a big part of your work is actually like ident- thinking about rational selection mm-hmm. of probiotics, right? So think about like, what are the important strains and, and who should we, um, you know, who should we put into a formulation so that it can have like maximum effect? But in a natural setting, lactobacilli are present in fermented foods, dairy products, cheese, and your run-of-the-mill probiotics. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, What is the role of prescribed medication for these diseases? Any effect on the gut microbiome? Ah, so this is a really interesting question. Something I'm I'm really curious about myself, but we actually know that lots of antidepressants, right, SSRIs, can actually... Uh, have antimicrobial effects. We don't yet know fully how, say, Prozac affects the gut microbiome structure compared to Zoloft, compared to, uh, you know, Lexapro. Um, In our study, we are going to have people being treated for depression. And so we're actually hoping to maybe look at that and, and think about how specific antidepressants might affect the gut microbiome composition and function and how that has an effect on uh, the development and progression of psychiatry. I just want to uh, point out a comment from uh, Robert Lustig. Dr. Lustig says, for healthy, protect the, protect the liver from sugar, feed the gut with fiber, and support the brain with omega-3s. I think yes. that's <laughs> a summary of, of kind of some of the you know, protective uh, exposures that we, we might consider. Um, another question asking, did you check what happens when you give the mice stool from patients with depression that are on antidepressants? Yeah, so it's an interesting question. I haven't seen that in the literature as of yet, but um, stay tuned because <laughs> maybe we will get there. It would be really nice to see if you kind of resolve, you know, you can transfer that, resolve some of those those behavioral um, issues that you see. Yeah. In, it's in the, the yeah logical extension, right? Like yeah, to throw is. it in and say, does it look like a, a healthy, healthy? Great yeah. Again, from Dr. Lustig, could SSRIs be having their effect indirectly on GI serotonin? that then gets carried along the afferent vagus nerve to either the NTS or DRN, which are our neurons, as opposed to bloodborne effects of SSRIs on CNS serotonin. Yeah, I think it's a really good point, right? I think we ought to remember that um, drugs come in directly to the gut first. And so there's no doubt that, that there's some effect on serotonin, right? That, that shows up in the uh, side effects that people get when they take uh, these medications sometimes. Um, and so I would not be surprised if 
a component, at least, or uh, part of the response to SSRIs was because of locally produced serotonin. We know that 90, 95% of the serotonin is actually located in the gut, interacting with that vagus nerve. And I haven't seen yet the experiment where somebody snip the vagus nerve and see if you still get the, still, if you still get the effect. I think it would be a great, great study to do. What does fecal transplant mean? Do they feed the mice feces? So essentially, yes, <laughs> it's a short answer. And yeah. I think probably, yeah, that's come up multiple times, right? In this, in this, uh, in this series. And, and it's right. You, uh, Declan, you probably talked about this, but this is, while it sounds kind of icky and sort of broke, it's a, it a, it's used in diseases like C. diff infections, right? So this is something that people do. Uh, and so that was exactly what FMT or fecal microbiota transplant means. Yeah, it's a critical tool to prove that it's microbiological activities in the patient that's driving features of their disease. If you can transfer those features of disease to a recipient animal by transferring fecal microbes, you, you now have proof that there's microbiological activities that are, are driving you know, aspects of the, the disease condition. Um, uh, another question, what metabolites would be in the blood, short-chain fatty acids? How can you distinguish what comes from the gut and what comes from other sources? Ah, that's a great question. Um, I didn't show this slide just because uh, <laughs> for time's sake, but uh, actually a lot of what is circulating in your blood comes from the microbes. Um, it's from the stuff that they do contain within the gut. And so things like short-chain fatty acids, uh, tryptophan metabolites can all be found in the blood. And so the question of, of uh, what how do you know if something is coming from the host, from the human, or coming from the microbes? And we know because of the biosynthetic capacity, right, we sequence genes, we know that there are some metabolites that only come from bacteria. And if we see them, we know that, for example, indoles that are coming from tryptophan, those are only from microbes. Humans don't produce those sorts of things. And so when they're there, we know it's because of what the gut microbiome is doing. I guess harder as well to differentiate if it's coming from the gut or activities of microbes at other mucosal sites as well. That that's maybe a little bit more difficult to decide. Absolutely, but we can at least differentiate between microbial derived small molecules and and host derived. Though I will say as well, what we've seen and and others have seen is that microbes not only produce all these molecules that only they can produce, but they also engage in biomimicry. They can produce molecules that we can produce, the, the host, the human genome can produce, and they do this to often ramp up concentrations to really drive specific responses, cellular responses in the host. So they are masters in biomimicry as well as in producing all of these additional um, microbial-derived bioactives. Next question, what about diseases that express too much serotonin or not enough dopamine, for instance? Could they be treated by intervening on the microbiome? Yeah, um, it's interesting. You know, I think, I um, wish I had a very specific answer for this, but I think that what we're seeing is that the gut microbes are important producers of neurotransmitters. And as Dr. Lustig was sort of suggesting, right, that, that what happens in the gut in terms of neurotransmitter production might have really important effects on the brain. And so I can totally see a situation where we identify other diseases you know, that are due to other imbalances, not just serotonin, and identify microbes that we could, or engineer, engineer microbes, which is really what I'm excited about, um, that could modulate that effect, right? Could you replete the, dop the dopamine or like tune down the serotonin? Um, and I think we still have more to do to understand the, the mechanisms there so we could potentially engineer some, some organism. 
great. And then the last question we have is, does non-dairy yogurt or kefir containing lactobacillus or bifidobacterium have the same properties on mental health? So I haven't seen a study necessarily where somebody got kefir from the grocery store, but uh, <laughs> it'd be interesting. But uh, to, to your point, um, a um, fermented milk product, so this is a little bit different because it's not, it's not kefir, it's not milk, right? But um, um there was a study that demonstrated that, you know, ingesting this uh, fermented product uh, could have an effect on mental health symptoms. And so kefir, I, I believe, has sort of probiotics and living organisms kind of hanging out in the bottom of it and, and TBD as to what those are. But I can see a situation in which that is possible. And I think the study maybe needs to be done. And so maybe we'll maybe we'll do it. <laughs> Great. Well, that's all the questions we have, Ryan. Thank you so much for your time. And I, I want to talk, thank the audience for their questions, their, their questions and their comments throughout this series. It's really been a, a wonderful series. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, and with that, we will close. Have a good evening, everybody. Take care. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.